difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Scott Tobias. Keith Phipps. And Scott Tobias. Wait, wait, that's too many Scots. Scott, why are there two of you? What's going on here? Uh, actually, I'm not sure about this guy, and he's uh, kind of creeping me out. You guys look just like each other. I'm not sure why Genevieve set you both up with your own mics, but we've got to figure out which one of you is the real Scott. I'm the real Scott! As you can see, this is nonsense, and I am the authentic Scott Tobias. You should ignore this imposter. Okay, I got this. One of my long-standing public arguments with Scott is going to save the day here. Scott's, how do you guys feel about lettuce on burritos? Tasha, we've been over this before. Lettuce is, uh, I'm okay with it on tacos, but on, on burritos, it's too hot. I mean, why does anybody want to eat hot lettuce? Terrible. There's no need for hate of lettuce on burritos. All takes on burrito fillings are equally valid. Okay, that's that's the fake Scott right there. But I might actually like fake Scott better. Okay, fake Scott, did you come out of a pod? Of course. What could be more appropriate for a podcast? Oh, God, that was terrible. Well, we need to get on with this podcast, and you probably want to get on with replacing us all with uncanny alien duplicates. So, uh, Pod Scott, can you tell us what we're talking about this week? That seems like a logical and rational thing to do. I will comply. Recently, writer-director Jordan Peele followed up his first film, the widely celebrated horror thriller Get Out, with the new movie Us, starring Lupita Nyong'o as a woman whose family comes under assault by eerie doppelgangers. The prospect of facing an exact duplicate of yourself comes up often in horror and fantasy films, but virtually all movies that draw on this sort of imagery owe a certain debt to Jack Finney's 1955 novel, The Body Snatchers, and its many cinematic adaptations. This week, the human hosts of this podcast will be examining the movie Us, in conjunction with the 1978 adaptation, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, starring Donald Sutherland and many other familiar faces as American citizens facing an otherworldly threat that replaces people with emotionless copies of themselves. We'll look at how both movies handle the idea of an outside threat that prompts self-examination and how they define what it means to be human. That was beautiful, Pod Scott. I, I, lo- I love your delivery. Well, there is no further need for love. Now, may I suggest you have a very relaxing nap before continuing with this podcast, perhaps over there in the conservatory. Uh, okay, uh, sure. Let me just grab my fire axe. And we'll be back in a bit to talk about Us, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and the long history of horror movies about identity, doppelgangers, and mass takeovers of the world. They come from a dying world. They drift through the universe, pushed on by the solar winds. They adapt, and they survive. The function of all life is survival. Sleep. 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 From deep space. Sleep. Sleep. The seed is planted. Sleep. Sleep. Terror grows. Sleep. Matthew! 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 Like the others. Elizabeth, wake up. Get you when you sleep. Sit up! Invasion 
of the Body Snatchers. Early on in Jordan Peele's Us, the protagonist, Adelaide, says she's been noticing a lot of weird coincidences lately, and she thinks they're a hint of something larger coming. It's hard to know what to make of that in the context of Us, given that the plot point doesn't seem to come to much. But it does feel like it's a potential way of explaining all the coincidences that abound around the film's relationship to Philip Kaufman's 1978 movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Maybe it's even a reference to Invasion's own odd series of coincidences, starting with a meeting that radically shaped the film. In a making of Featurette, Kaufman explains that he'd been thinking about remaking Don Siegel's 1956 horror classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers, so he dropped in on Siegel's office, looking for his blessing and his advice. While he was there, who happened to walk in but Kevin McCarthy, star of the 1956 Body Snatchers? And as the three men started talking, Kaufman says, Siegel and McCarthy let him in on some of the details of the film they wanted to make back in 1956 and couldn't get past the studio at the time. That's how the 1978 Body Snatchers came to get made, and how Siegel and McCarthy ended up with cameo roles in the film. Here's another mild coincidence for you. In 1978, the idea of a sound designer, not a sound recorder or supervisor or a Foley artist, but someone whose entire job was to invent new sounds for things that didn't exist, was a rapidly growing discipline, thanks to the tremendous influence of George Lucas's 1977 film Star Wars, and his tremendous focus on created sound effects for that film. Lucas's sound designer, widely credited with having pioneered the discipline as it exists today, was Ben Burt, who wound up on Body Snatchers, trying to figure out a way to create the noises of alien duplicates being born out of pods. Coincidentally enough, his wife was pregnant when the film was being made, and when he sat in on an ultrasound to hear what his new baby sounded like, also a newly popular and common technology at the time, he heard the sounds he wanted to use in Body Snatchers. When Donald Sutherland is sleeping in the garden in that film, and a steady, wet, throbbing sound surrounds him as four alien duplicates form at his feet, you're listening to the heartbeat of Ben Burt's unborn child. There are a lot of fascinating production stories like that about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, about how Kaufman worked to get what he describes as the look of a film noir, but in color or how he had no budget for the opening alien world sequence, so his effects designers assembled an alien world on a small piece of plywood and populated it with writhing creatures made by pouring a $10 bottle of art gel into water. Or how, once again, aliens Veronica Cartwright went into a horror sequence without having been told beforehand what would happen. When Donald Sutherland shrieks at her at the end of the movie, she says, that was real horror on her face in response. Just as with the alien chestburster scene, she'd been given some lead-up idea of what to expect, but hadn't been filled in on the details. But the making of aside, Kaufman's invasion of the body snatchers remains fascinating for other reasons. The stars, Sutherland Cartwright, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, and Leonard Nimoy, are facing a threat that sounds like a paranoid fantasy no matter how you spin it. Aliens who copy humans and then destroy the originals are rapidly taking over Earth, and there's no way to explain that without sounding insane. The original 1956 Body Snatchers was taken as a metaphor for the creeping spread of either communism or McCarthyism, but the 1978 version, Kaufman says, is more about the dread and malaise of the 1970s, that feeling that the government couldn't be trusted, authority figures couldn't be trusted, and especially the psychiatric community couldn't be trusted, since it was so determined to tell everyone that their problems could be solved with positivity and hugging. So if you can't trust anyone, who do you turn to when humanity starts to disappear? According to this version of Body Snatchers, all you can do is cling to your loved ones as long as you can. Maybe that involves trusting a few friends to watch your back. Maybe it involves acting on a long-standing crush and seizing whatever emotional connection you still have time for. And maybe eventually, it involves giving in and becoming the thing you most fear, because there's no other choice. It's a conclusion Peel also reaches in us in a very different way, and that certainly isn't a coincidence. 
What the hell is it? Call Nancy. Keep calm. Is it contagious? Any of your customers seen this? No. Uh, it'd ruin us. It's all we'd need. Look, I am calling the police. No, don't do that. Why? Nancy, don't. Because I think Jack is right. Not immature, exactly. He's got an adult face. It's a monster. It's got hair all over it. It's vague. Nose, lips, ear, hands, everything. But it's got no detail, no character. It's unformed. Jack, don't touch it. You don't know where it's been. So, guys, what do you what do you make of the 1978 Body Snatchers? We chose this over three other Body Snatchers films, partially just on the reputation it has. Do you have any feelings about this one or about how it compares to the other ones? I think the first two versions of this movie are just unimpeachable five-star classics. I love them both. And I, I liked Ava Ferrara's Body Snatchers as well. Uh, this movie... So <laughs> this movie is a pessimistic 70s science fiction film and a, a great paranoid post-Watergate 70s mm-hmm. uh, thriller in one. This is like, this may as well have my name on it. You know, <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I love this film so much and I, I was really happy to revisit. I hadn't seen it in a few years and uh, uh, it's better than I remembered. It's just the atmosphere in this and, and the, the way Kaufman sets up that something's wrong in San Francisco with these little details at first that just go get incre- you know increasingly hard to ignore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you're watching how people actually react when the city changes or don't react when the city starts to change until it's you know too late but in a, you know obviously in a very extreme scenario here uh how about you scott what you think yeah i mean i i love it too i mean i'm i'm right there with you on the other body snatchers movies i rewatched before this as well the, the don siegel version and that is uh tight as a drum and, mm-hmm. and uh, very strikingly photographed and i think that its allegory is pretty plain and powerful in its way you know it's, it's good suggested viewing with like panic in the streets which i think is another anti-communist thing but um i'm not sure okay yeah, well you know. yeah, we, we're gonna get yeah, sidetracked yeah, yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, it yeah. I, but i i feel like it's it's uh-huh. yeah anyway carry on anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I forgot that we had this argument before about it about whether I think there's uh, a couple ways to read that movie, and neither is necessarily correct. But you know, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, just yeah, everyone kind of thinking the same way in the town, and yeah, right in the midst. Of, yeah, uh, exactly. Right. Anyway, anyway, uh, so uh, uh, <laughs> I really like this film a lot. I think for the reasons you mentioned, it is this combination of a kind of a horror film and a '70s political thriller. The movie mm-hmm. it reminded me the most of watching it again was the conversation. I think that those films have so much in. Common. I think it's including common, San Francisco, including, including some locations. Exactly. Well. No, I mean, they, I mean, there really are two peas in a pod, right? Huh? Sure. Come on, the pod is a pod. The pods. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, I mean, uh, Pod Scott had better jokes. <laughs> that was a pretty good one. Anyway, uh, yeah, so the, the, they feel like companion pieces to me. But I think the difference is that this has the atmosphere and feel of a political thriller and it is about the transformation of a city you know and and of of certain attitudes but it feels very personal too and kind of like intimate in a way that it has a different feel and conversation in that respect i mean it really is just about humanity the state of humanity rather than politics so much of the early scenes the scenes in the first half of the movie are very uh altman-esque i mean it's another sort of type of a 70s yeah. movie it connects to it it's sort of like these sort of shaggy people living at loose ends in in, in troubling times uh trying to do the best they can and these are sort of the overlapping conversations and and the uh, the set decoration that just looks like they showed up at somebody's house. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's uh, no, it's it's no. It, but I and I kind of agree. I think the best stuff in the film is background rather than foreground. Mm-hmm. It is all of those little caught moments of uh, 
people giving you weird looks and you know that early bit with like a priest on a swing and you get that perspective and it's like what's going on with that guy and robert uh, duvall that, that is right. Yeah, right. Is. You're right. That yeah. is Robert Duvall. I think he, just, he was just a friend of Kaufman's, right? If that's, uh, I, yeah, uh, apparently he was just a friend of Kaufman's. And like, I don't know any details about how that happened, but I mean, it's just so, <laughs> it's such a weird moment because it's before, as far as you know, any, any potting has gone on. And theoretically, that's just a really weird priest mm-hmm. who just happens to be. would have known him too. He, he had been in The Godfather before. Oh, yeah, no, he was. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so to have, have him just there in a wordless cameo is, is you, you're like, I can't wait to see more of this character and that's the end of it like in a cassock i mean it's just it's a really it's a very bold and specific directorial choice yeah. it's it's not something that's that's going to fade in the background yeah you talk about the kind of the found aspect of this film of the, and like the weird looks people give the camera apparently a lot of that came from the fact that the, the cinematographer and both donald sutherland and, and brooke adams went on just like wandering trips through san francisco the cinematographer covered the camera up with a coat and they would just wander through crowds with him following them around whenever you're in a crowd scene with that moving camera following somebody's back jerry style those those weird looks are probably wait a minute that guy's got a camera and he's filming me Mm -hmm. but more often than not people just don't notice the camera and you're just you're getting authentic shots of people on the streets of san francisco just kind of hanging out there are a lot of really bold directorial choices in this film, and some of them are problem solving. Like the the sequence that happens around the conservatory when uh, Sutherland's character finds what's supposed to be Elizabeth's replacement, and he calls in the cops, and you end up with her husband and Kaufman and and Nimoy and a couple of cops all standing around, and the camera's just like lunging up into people's faces and wandering around the room. That was again a, the cinematographer just problem solving for the fact that it was a very complicated set piece with a lot of dialogue, a lot of people crowded into a small space. He just stepped into the middle of them and wandered with his camera. There are a lot of weird choices like that in this film. Do you do you have any thoughts on just kind of like the directorial tone of this film and how unusual it is? Well, one thing I would say for the cinematographer, the cinematographer is Michael Chapman, mm-hmm. who, who at the time had shot Taxi Driver had shot fingers right after Invasion of Modern Centuries and hardcore. Like he was somebody who was used to kind of taking the camera to the street and giving you that real vibrancy, like pretty strong colors really for a 70s film, but a lot of grit as well. And that was, I think that's definitely something great he brings to the table. And then of course the sound design, as you mentioned in your keynote too, is just a, um, so striking also just the you know the repeated kind of visual motifs of the uh of the tendrils everywhere of the cracked windshield and this all sort of reinforces this atmosphere which is so rich and really the best part of the movie for me i mean i i do like the performances and some of the characterization i like the rivalry between jeff goldblum and leonard nimoy's characters and the way that pays off i mean all that's all that's great but um but i think that it really starts for me with just establishing the world of the film and kind of giving it kind of a, a real eerie life it's a really great san francisco movie the driving scenes are really eerie because it always feels like something is going to go wrong and eventually it does but it is kind of taxi driver-esque too where it's just sort of it is kind of this guerrilla filmmaking on a, on a bigger budget inside a inside a car yeah. just sort of san francisco as it really was at that point 
Yeah, Kaufman says this was a really low-budget film. He didn't give a specific number. And it's a little hard to believe in kind of the big action climax where Sutherland is single-handedly destroying a giant warehouse full of pods. But apparently, like, the opening was just was all about, like, how can we do this on the ultra cheap? And it really doesn't show. During the scenes where you're, you're watching extreme close-ups of tiny tendrils like crawling out of like alien like little baby alien pods it reminded me so much of john carpenter's the thing Mm. uh you can see how it was done you know you can see that what you're watching is just like a reverse stop motion shot of threads being drawn into the thing but it's so convincing Mm -hmm. it just it looks so eerie and so real and it's one of my i mean you, you talk about all of the found moments of real people some of my favorite stuff in the film is just how eerie and weird these ultra cheap practical effects end up looking the dog <laughs> just the you oh know, my god that's I, I, I right always, always speaking, for, speaking of the thing i always know? forget how brilliantly that's set up i mean you, you see the banjo player and the dog a bunch of times but i always forget the the moment that involves uh donald sutherland's character kicking the pod so you kind of see the pod going wrong and mm-hmm. it's kind of the explanation for why that but yeah the the dog with the human face that is such an upsetting image and and it, you know i don't want to go, go on the whole practical effects are awesome you know tear again but it is a case where no that's not a convincing effect but it is it is like this strange mask uncanny uh image that that, that will you know haunt your nightmares for the rest of your life after you see it so this will come up again but it's, uh, I, I just got to put this out there. My my husband has done an audio drama that's also about uh, Ayla and Alien Takeover of the World. And as a kind of like between season things, he, he just finished watching all four Body Snatchers movies mm-hmm. and putting together podcasts about them. So he was like steadily feeding me trivia while I was rewatching the 78 one. And he brought up the fact that that, that isn't any sort of like, early like digital or, or matte special effect that is literally a latex mask stuck on a dog mm-hmm. and that horrible moment where it licks his lips mm-hmm. was completely unplanned and unpredicted the dog just <laughs> happened to like lick its its own face dog being a dog through that horrible mask yeah yeah if you watch that in slow motion uh it's it's horrifying you know because it's just it comes uh, at you pretty fast in the movie yeah, and there are uh, you know dog tongues in slow motion. There are there are a bunch of photographers out there that do fun things with just how weird uh, and complicated dog tongues are. But yeah, if you watch that in slow motion, it's just this bizarre flare of this weird flappy pink piece of flesh that's going to make you rethink dogs. <laughs> I really didn't expect uh, this, the conversation to, to go to dog tongues. I, I didn't expect the movie to go to dog it tongues. It does, it does. I but guess. it is, it's such a weird moment. So is the opening with those like weirdly phallic flailing flagella things. I had to go back and rewatch that and I find that so hard to believe that that's literally just somebody dumped a bunch of gel in water and filmed what they got as a result. Mm-hmm. It looks so planned. It looks so so technical. It looks advanced. Yeah. And just and just kind of like tactile and almost and really close to natural but really supernatural. All that stuff is really well done. That initial kind of rainfall which is something you expect from San Francisco, they get plenty of rain. And then just different ways the creatures manifest themselves as these beautiful flowers as these uh 
not so beautiful (laughs) blooms and then all those wispy tendrils that kind of drift around when people fall asleep those are all separate effects and they're all very well managed those early shots of uh, just like hunks of slime slowly flowing downstream in the rain reminded me so much of shane kruth's upstream color and to the to the point where like you've seen it much more recently than i have scott does it feel like that's a deliberate reference i i haven't seen the film in a while I wouldn't be surprised, uh, given Shane Caruth's general film literacy, um, but uh, I'm not. Sh- I-, I can't say for sure. Well, we we could probably go on all day about the like the sound design and like the cinematography. I I could practically go on all day just about the shot where the crowd of people is pursuing the heroes through a tunnel, through mm-hmm. a backlit tunnel. I mean, that's it's such a like a compelling and and tragic and terrifying shot. But we should probably get into the human drama a little. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a pretty amazing cast. It is. Yes. It's, it's a cast of 70s all-stars. <laughs> I mean, I guess probably the least famous is... is- Cartwright, and I mean, apart from this, an alien. I mean, she's known for other stuff as well. She's she's good, but but I, I new appreciation for her ability to scream. Between <laughs> this and Alien, I, there's a moment in Alien that in the in the uh, the the chest bursting scene, where she says the words "Oh God," but in a delivery I could not possibly attempt to imitate. Uh, but yeah, she's she's a go to person for for memorable screams screams. It feels like you're having your soul ripped from your body. She's your person for that. But they're all really good. I mean, I, I like you said, I, I liked that you know the, these relationships felt like real relationships it felt like people who'd known each other for years and they felt like very 70s people you know that none of them none of them have kids uh they're just kind of been kind of drifting around a little you know he's a poet who co-owns a, a mud bath <laughs> place you know what a weirdly is, and, specific conglomeration of things uh, yeah and, and and nimoy's burgeoning celebrity also feels really uh, appropriate as well to, to the 70s uh, the, the, when a psychiatrist could become a celebrity that way um I, it all it all works to me and and they the adams sutherland relationship where it's so much they they both know there's something there and they won't say anything about it, but mm-hmm. but um, until they never really talk about it, it just kind of kind of happens. They're driven to it by circumstances. Well, and they're also driven. I mean, she does have that awesome boyfriend. I mean, he seems like a real <laughs> catch. I mean, he, he likes seems, basketball. He seems crazily like a, like a modern day ba- Baxter character. Like the yeah. fact the fact that we were introduced to him like with his headphones on, like watch TV and tuning her out. It, it feels like if feels like he could be playing a video game in a thinly veiled metaphor for well this guy doesn't live in the real world like yeah. in a movie today it that, just he feels so modern i like the use of headphones too that was you know not i'm not sure when they were you know the mainstream but this i think it's fairly early in them being a mainstream thing but the idea of just another way in which people were kind of disappearing into themselves and in, in this in this culture and the biggest laugh in the film him grabbing Brooke Adams uh, for a quick makeout session, but then cheering when 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 his, his team <laughs> scores, uh, all while leaving his headphones on. That has never happened to me. <laughs> um, I've never done anything like that with Brooke Adams. But uh, I was touched by the relationship between uh, Donald Sutherland's character Matthew and Brooke Adams' character Elizabeth as it develops and deepens, because they have to kind of express their feelings for each other as a way of reminding each other that they're still present. And mm-hmm. so, and so, they kind of move to the "I love you" phase pretty 
quickly and it, and they end up meaning it in in that kind of that feeling is such a beacon of warmth and humanity in a world that is that where all of those lights are going out and i and i like i like that i mean you don't really see that in a horror film that much love is a is an important theme in this movie and, and obviously something that Kaufman feels in a very earnest way is is a big part of what makes humans humans and so and so it gets expressed in a, in a very direct fashion I really like that about the movie I think it's also the the relationship between Elizabeth and Matthew walks such a fine line of like he's her he's her boss he's her co-worker he's clearly got a crush on her they hang out together like pretty clearly the boyfriend isn't invited Sutherland seems to be leaning on her gently to acknowledge the fact that her boyfriend is a drip and yet he doesn't come across as like that prototypical nice guy the like the favor sharking friend who's just kind of hanging out in the background desperately waiting for her to be single you know why because he's played by Donald Sutherland (laughs) But it's such a it's just such a nuanced character. It's you can tell from the beginning that he has an affection for her, that he's happy to be around her, that he doesn't like her boyfriend and and wishes he was in his place. But he there's also just sort of a feeling of almost resignation there. Like he's he's fought that fight and he's come to terms with it. And it feels very natural when they drift together over the course of the film. It doesn't feel like a big drama. It feels like like a real human drama, like the way it would happen in real life. Mm-hmm. He also has integrity too. I mean, that's something that's that's kind of set up right away with his job as a health inspector. He's not going to let this restaurant off the hook for having uh, what is not a caper in <laughs> in the sauce. Um, and um, and I think maybe he is also in that regard not going to cross that line with her either. So um, so that that that's established well um that introduction with him storming into the restaurant and uh, just being a complete dick to them over (laughs) like his he's got integrity man and he's going to stand by it yeah reminded me so much of what we see of his character in don't look now and all the conversations we had when we addressed that film about his his character's like deep obsession with his work like sutherland I think it's just very easy for him to play characters who seem completely devoted to what they do. Yeah. No, that, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, there's a good connection there. I also, of course, love the you know relationship between Dr. Kibner, played by Leonard Nimoy, and Belichick, played by <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, uh, because I think. I mean, I think you feel like Kibner is all right as we're introduced to him is already at a point where he's been turned because he's such a jerk and nobody, you know, it seems to be have so, so little compassion for the people that are coming to him for help. He has answers for them, but doesn't really seem to actually be listening to what they're trying to, they're saying to him. And then, of course, Goldblum is just hates every single thing that comes out of the guy's mouth and so of course the payoff of that when they both turned is uh, such a delight i think it's interesting that he we don't know when he turned like is he like was he maybe he's one of the first maybe the book is part, part of the propaganda of the body snatchers oh i don't well. think that's true i mean i think what you see in the opening scene at the bookstore like he does a fair bit of smiling like when mm-hmm. he when he wraps his arms around the woman who's saying this isn't my husband and the husband and is trying to push them together to hug uh i think you see a lot of 
fake warmth there that's consistent with an author who's very full of himself, mm-hmm. uh, but that the pod people don't bother with. None of them try to pretend to be warm. They do. He does. When The one scene where you know he's a pod person, we find out immediately afterwards he's a pod person, though he's still kind of behaving that way, too. I think it's maybe it's a little bit of a commentary that sort of like self-help guru could also, you know, wittingly or unwittingly be serving the interest of, of the pod people. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think the film has nothing but contempt for him and his yeah. kind. It's a brilliant use of Nimoy, too, as a sort of like this all, you know, however fake, all hugs and smiles <laughs> character, too. I mean, it's just when stunt casting works, that's what it looks like. And then Goldblum, like, on, on the other hand, like, the pettiness of his jealousy and rivalry <laughs> is just so entertaining from from the get-go. Like, you understand that he is he's being very childish about his poetry and his, you know, I, he writes a book in the time it takes me to write a line, but I, you know, I, I curate my work. I, 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 like, he's just, he sounds like such a baby. But the more you see of Nimoy, the more you're like, yeah, I would resent that guy's success too if I was, if my friend, who is also his friend, kept like forcing me into contact with him. Yeah, Goldblum is just fun. And the transition for him into pod personedom mm. is just such a massive change from like that warm, sloppy, kind of happy go lucky uh, Goldblum that we see so much into this like crazy big eyed monster. Yeah, I mean, and, and then on the other part, I mean, uh, Kibner is somebody who seems professionally inclined to turn people into pod <laughs> folks, whether there are aliens around or not. I mean, his whole thing is to, just to try to calm everyone down and bring bring them down to some sort of level of inexpressiveness that is ultimately what happens quite you know literally when the aliens take them over. I feel like there was sort of a, a thread in the seventies, the the I'm okay, you're okay movement. That's one of the things Kaufman kind of references, not by name, but but sort of thematically when he's talking about what he's doing here. The 50s version had such specific references for what it was doing. I'm curious how you guys feel the the overall metaphor here plays. I think it's a little looser. I think it's a little more like us, not to get ahead of it, but where, where <laughs> I feel like because it's not necessarily tied to one thing, because whether it's pro-McCarthy, anti-McCarthy, however you want to read uh, the Siegel, Siegel version, it's definitely commenting on that, where this seems to be more coming on sort of you know vague trends. The Malaysia you mentioned before, the distrust of the government, uh, but also sort of the, whatever united the counterculture in the 60s that kind of turned into all these sort of like fragment little, whether cults or, or you know, me generation, self-help stuff or whatever, uh, you know, all that sort of idealism had sort of, evaporated even in a hotbed of of it like like san francisco it was not the driving force for the culture anymore so what was left well nobody knew and i think that that's the kind of situation that's that's being depicted here and that's the kind of thing where um you know in the absence of something uh some sort of passionate ideology or passionate beliefs thing like uh the the uh whatever we want to see as a metaphor for the the pod the podization of uh, Mm -hmm. of the of the culture could happen yeah, there's a flattening effect. I mean, the the fact that it is set in San Francisco is no mistake. I mean, mm-hmm. San Francisco is the city that we associate with the counterculture and with rebellion and with, with a certain amount of vibrancy. And to see that be the site where all of that's getting taken away and where, where, where everyone is going to start acting the same and, and where all this emotion and passion that once drove the city, you know, 10 years earlier 
is kind of evaporated. I mean, that that's kind of what the film is getting at, I think, on an allegorical level. And sure. it's prescient, too, as to what's happened to San Francisco, which has become a place where it's impossible for, any, for anyone who doesn't have boatloads of money to live. And, and uh, the counterculture has just been kind of like uh, institutionalized as what part of it? the city's history. Mr. Show sketch? <laughs> San Francisco, yes. New San Francisco. New San Francisco. Uh, uh, great sketch. But also, uh, one of my favorite details is how even when the pods have taken over most of the city, the red light district remains unaffected or sort of like the last to go. Cause like, you know, for better, or for worse, the, the place where you can just be the per, you know, be whoever you want to be because no rules apply. is going to be the last place that the pod people are able to take over. But even there outside the sign where it says like, like live new co-eds or something, there's, there's this one woman who's just kind of positioned and kind of staring off into space mm-hmm. and you know it's not going to last you know this is going to fall too yeah but that is striking when you get to that moment mm-hmm. in, the, in the film just to see to see oh wait this place hasn't been <laughs> transformed yet and right it, and it's kind of stands out for that reason yeah and it, it always surprises me when i revisit the film that they don't really cling to that that they run away from it they uh, you know matthew seems a little distressed by like the dirty squalidness of it all but mm-hmm. it, to some degree it feels like a weird little bastion of of unpleasant warmth i always expect them to duck into one of those nudie theaters just because here is clearly a place where people are still human it's raw humanity yeah and all their their grubby sexualized glory well we, sh- we should probably end by talking about that ending is there mm. that that final moment, I, I am hard pressed to think of a single moment in cinema that captures the feeling of a nightmare better than the look on Donald Sutherland's face. It just, it encapsulates loneliness to me in a way I don't think anything else in the movies ever has. The fact that it takes place in a part of San Francisco where they're really the only people around, that overcast look to it, it does feel dreamlike. And also, it feels like the dream sequence in the conversation. But yeah, this is far more nightmarish. I guess if you turn to loneliness, I think, you know, you have to look to another Michael Chapman uh, shot film. It's the end of Taxi Driver in a way when you realize that that whatever connection you think this person might have made uh, after committing what was dubbed by the press and others a heroic act is, is it never happened. He's as alone as he ever was. Yeah. Uh, well, it's just filmically so exciting and tense. I mean, I, I, cause we, you know, we get this kind of prelude to it when, when we, I think we, we suspect or know that, that he's, he's turned, he's, he's kind of walking out of his office along with other people and they don't, there's no real life to that, to those movements. And, uh, and so we kind of, I think feel like it's coming, even though he's been he's been able to hold out for such a long time and got it got himself out of a pretty huge s- scrape or what seemed seemed like he got himself out of a s- huge scrape at the end. But yeah, just the low angle shot of him pointing and screaming, the the camera kind of going into his mouth mm-hmm. in the film ending that way is really exciting. I mean, it's a great coda and uh it's 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 shocking i think i think people were fairly shocked by it at the time as considered it a twist yeah well i mean the original invasion at least gave you the bookends that suggested there might be a way out of this uh which was i believe added on uh by by studio mandate Mm -hmm. um 
And this is, uh, well, it's it's a different decade. You, uh, yeah. you can get away with grimmer endings in the 70s than you could in the 50s. Yeah. And I mean, you've got that little like little cap in the 70s, in the middle of the 70s movie, to seal off any hope that the 50s movie had. You know, you have right. Kevin McCarthy resurfacing, screaming as he was screaming at the end of the 50s movie. You know, they're, they're you're next, they're coming. You know, you've got to do something, you've got to listen to me. And the 70s movie kills them off mm-hmm. just to make sure that you can't hold out anything any form of hope Keith before when we were when we were uh, discussing uh, a little bit of trivia between Tasha's keynote and now you you had, had an interesting thing about the sound designer oh trivia the, oh just yeah, I want to hear well, this, you, Tasha, people you, should people should hear but it's great just this is, this is just a little a little aside but the unborn child whose heartbeat you hear is Ben Burt jr who just won uh, an Oscar for uh, as a, working as a sound editor in Black Panther. So it's a, it, apparently it's a family business. And, and like even before he came into this world, he was contributing to the world of uh, film sound effects. And now he's uh, still contributing to the world of, of film sound effects. And now we've all got to go back and rewatch Black Panther and see if we can find a heartbeat in there anywhere <laughs> that's possibly his son. I love it. it, it do you know that the guy who says they're coming in the film, that's, that's Kevin McCarthy. He was in the original film. <laughs> I've given you my I've given look, look pod Scott if you're gonna if you're gonna walk into the middle of the conversation without knowing what happened two minutes ago uh, we're, we're just gonna it's, it's axe to the FaceTime uh, I'll drop some trivia and uh, the banjo work is done by Jerry Garcia oh yeah that's right oh, that's I completely really forgot good. about the Jerry Garcia credit and I love the music in this and it's uh, um, Danny Zeitlin who's a jazz musician this is his only score but boy you know, if you're only gonna do one do this one it's good or really winding down into the the tiniest moving uh, creepy threads of this movie so uh, it's possibly time to move on we'll be back with feedback time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Uh, Keith, can you read this first one for us? I can. Last week, we talked about how director Paul Verhoeven wanted to make Total Recall as a movie that could be read two ways. Either the protagonist Quaid is really a super spy with his memories erased, or virtually everything that happens in the film is a dream adventure he paid to have a company install in his head. We touched on how it's hard to buy Quaid as a workaday everyman since he's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, which undermines one of these two readings. At the same time, we talked about how Schwarzenegger's persona limits the film. But on Facebook, listener DW pushed back with this feedback. Listen, I know it's easy to poke fun at Schwarzenegger's limited range and acting ability, but I think Arnold would be the first to admit his limitations. That's probably why he mostly purposely set out to make films built around his persona, and for a while there, he was very smart about the roles he chose. There's a lot of R's in there I wanted to pronounce. Um, How the public perceived him and what they expected from him. That said, I do agree that he's an odd fit for Quaid since there's absolutely no doubt in our minds that he's able to take out an entire back alley full of hired goons which is why Matt Damon works so well as Bourne. Nobody saw that shit coming. Schwarzenegger, though, is hardly the first megastar with limited range. John Wayne, I think, was very one-note, and Cary Grant, much as I love him, was pitched pretty much the same in everything. Yet audiences ate it up. My question, or questions, what actors, in your opinion, coasted by purely on their personas alone? Which actors did you love because of that? And which actors besides Arnold did you despise? So I remember a point back at the Dissolve where a Tom Cruise film came out and I pitched an essay to you, Keith, uh, to the effect of Tom Cruise has created a persona that he plays in every film. And you said, so would the title of this be Tom Cruise is a movie star? <laughs> yeah. 
And <laughs> I felt a little sheepish about that. But the, the more I thought about it, I, the, the more I, I, I hope, thought you're right. I hope it wasn't that condescending. <laughs> it was a little condescending. Wow. But it was also, I mean, it was it was an observation that I hadn't made. I hadn't, hadn't taken the next step. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized you're right. It is actually very common for stars past a certain level of stardom to do the same thing over and over and over. There are definitely like I enjoy Samuel L. Jackson's shtick. Um, he pretty much kind of has the one thing that he's called on to do these days, and he does it over and over and over. And I find it pretty, pretty genial and pretty easy to get into. There are other people like Michael Sarah. I'm tired of Michael Sarah. I'm, <gasps> I'm not going to say I despise him because that is a much stronger feeling than I have about him. But I did get to a point where. I was just tired of seeing him play the character that he plays. One of the reasons I love Scott Pilgrim versus the world so much is because he kind of plays a, a very slightly tuned up version of that character and the movie mocks him relentlessly for it. And I think it's hilarious. He, but, you also really liked him as uh, in Twin Peaks, right? Loved it. Ah, where's where's the pod? Can we get the pod person back in here? <laughs> yeah, I loved uh, I loved him in Twin Peaks. Like you love a big steaming heap of burrito lettuce, Scott. I came to like that scene. I wasn't sure what to make of it at first, but yeah, I think I think Michael Sarah. I don't know. He's a good example because I think he's kind of aware that the Michael Sarah persona has gotten a little old. And I think I feel like Scott Pilgrim was kind of a way to put that aside. I mean, he's joked about it. I was mm-hmm. I was at a Q&A in Chicago for Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, where somebody asked him in all seriousness, how he developed the character. And he said, entirely straight faced. Well, Mitchell Hurwitz liked what I did with Arrested Development. So I figured I'd just keep on doing that in every performance sense. <laughs> and I was like, that is a brutal self own Michael Sarah. And you're not wrong. Yeah, I like Michael Sarah though. I enjoy the Michael Sarah thing. But oh. I um I don't know, this, this letter is interesting because I mean I I wasn't really trying to poke fun at Schwarzenegger too much because I, I do think he was smart in the way he he applied himself in films. And I do like movie stars. I mean I the writer wasn't wrong about um, you know, John Wayne or Cary Grant. You can still have to Catherine Hepburn, especially a lot of golden age actors. And I think the best filmmakers are the ones who knew how to use that, who kind of built films around it. I mean, I mean, John Wayne's best performances in the searchers, he's definitely playing the John Wayne character, but the searchers is very much a exploration of what is, who is that character? What does it come from? And, and what happens when you push that character to its, its limits, it gets pretty ugly. And I think a lot of that is just knowing how to use movie stars versus expecting things, expecting them to go in ranges, places that they're not expected to go. And I think in some ways, Movie stars age better than actors who are chameleonic. I mean, I, I think, you know, you can you kind of look at where, where Robert De Niro is in his career right now. And, and it's he's kind of, in a way, kind of ossified into a Robert De Niro persona. But he began as a much more, um, much more unpredictable actor. I'm surprised that you we haven't you know no no one mentioned Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood yeah, is Clint like Eastwood. the ultimate yeah. example for me of somebody who, uh, you, you know, and of course Sergio Leone compare was asked to compare those two actors, De Niro and, and and Eastwood, and of course he felt like De Niro was like the real actor of the two, but Eastwood is is somebody who's really been smart about 
playing within his range and then and then uh, also really being able to c- comment on himself and, that, and and how that persona has kind of developed and and uh coarsened over time yeah it's a total package there when you're a direct when you're an actor who has those yeah. qualities who are also a director who knows how to use those qualities i mean he is uh yeah he's he's he's, he's the best of that kind of thing and, yeah. and continues to be and even if you look at the mule and, and this most recent film is a great example of that and and now that he's he's playing the age he's playing like what he's the the, the he's playing the weight of the years of these characters and what happens to the Clint Eastwood persona when they're not like sort of the, the viral strapping uh, young men anymore. You guys tend to be a lot more uh, positive than I do about, uh, I don't know, things. Is there, <laughs> are there superstars whose shtick you're just entirely tired of? Like people you just don't want to see on screen doing that thing that they do? I'll give you an example of the opposite because I do like things, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I found Keanu Reeves kind of laughable and, and, mm. and, and par, you know, self-parodic at when, when he first came on. And I don't know that putting him in some of his period pieces were made the best use of him now, but I mean, Keanu Reeves has just done what he does for, and, and he's kind of, I think he's learned how to be himself on screen even better and, and he's someone I actively look forward to now and feel great affection for and and reflect on those early performances differently because of it well, that's, I, I, if I'm going to say I'm tired of something you're, I'm tired of the rock I'm sorry oh yeah, my gosh I know that's fine he's gasp, he's, if, gasp if you will, will but, I, I'm, but I will I'm tired of that I'm gasp. tired of seeing that same performance every movie and I think if you look at his filmography it's it's mostly a bunch of duds. So, but Scott, I'm, don't you read his Instagram feed? Do you know how much he, of himself and his passion he puts into all these things? He, he, he these like multi-paragraph blocks explaining how important that Jungle Cruise is and how much, you know, how much, how much like, deeply felt how his, much, his like protein powder he was yeah, consuming yeah, for yeah. it or how something. Great, how great MBS is. That's, when that's, it, like, yeah. that's something that De Niro always talked about: is how much protein powder you take for a roll. <laughs> I, you know, I absolutely agree with you that the man has the one tool and, and he uses it, but I, I do not get tired of him playing that. I do not get tired of him like flashing that grin that he has absolutely like ruthlessly weaponized. And I don't get tired of that. I, I feel like with so many of the stars that play the same thing over and over, it just kind of comes down to, I know the thing that I do that, that you will find charming. Uh, and, you know, with, with Jackson, it's just kind of that like smirk of, you know, we're all in this together and we're not taking it seriously. With The Rock, it's that smile uh, and how it comes out of this like very serious beetle-browed look that he mostly does when he's when he's doing action heroes. Mm-hmm. We've mostly talked about uh, male stars. And I, I honestly think that's in part because it's much more common, you know, apart from Hepburn, who had a, a long career, it's much more common for men to stay in the game for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years and ossify into uh, a specific thing than it is for women. There are fewer roles for older women and they they tend to get out of the game. But I will give you a, a female example of somebody who kind of plays the same thing over and over. Uh, Diane Wiest. And I will never get tired yeah, she's great. of the thing that she does that's just like the the struggling striver who's trying so hard to keep a smile on her face and be upbeat for people. And underneath is just like a bottomless sadness. I think she's so terrific at that role. And, and every time she shows up and does it again, like I feel for her all over again. You know what movie she's good in? The Mule. Is she you know, really? It comes back to The Mule, I think. <laughs> what about Dench? Judy Dench. Dench is another good example of of someone who's basically called upon to bring gravitas and sternness into a role, and I 
<laughs> we'll probably never get tired of her either. I did, don't even really feel like the Catherine Hepburn example quite holds up when you look at something like Long Day's Journey and mm. Tonight, uh, which is which is kind of a look for her that uh, I'd never seen mm, before. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, is it just interesting about like what the differences between between uh, men and women in terms of s- stardom and what's expected of them and 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 what they can get away with in terms of range and longevity. I mean, all, all, all that's really worth thinking about. Well, I'm sure uh, our listeners are going to have a lot of examples of people that they're either in love with or just totally sick of. Um, but we can move on into more feedback. Uh, another listener named Charles wrote in with some reminiscing about a personal connection to White Men Can't Jump's extended Jeopardy scene. That's a longer letter and we'll post it on Facebook. Um, but he wrapped this letter up with a question. Scott? Okay, Charles. Charles writes, in the category of anything else in the world of film, I wanted to ask about your thoughts on the genre of criticism. In one of my courses, I have students write three different types of essays, a movie review, a piece of film theory, and an academic research paper on film. I try to teach that these are three distinct genres with differing goals and audiences. The review tells us about the critic's reaction and whether we should see or avoid a film. The theory essay is a more abstract meditation on or argument about an idea in cinema studies, and the academic research article goes more deeply into the historical context and analysis of works. I am wondering whether you all, as working critics, think my distinctions here are meaningful. Do you see your work as primarily functioning in the first category, or do you see those other two, theory and academic research, as part of your work? My leading thought is that your podcast attempts a blend of these categories, but I'm curious to hear if you think consciously about that. I am thinking about it a lot right now because as a film editor, I am laboriously trying to teach a bunch of young new critics who have mostly been exposed to people's opinions on the internet that film criticism is a larger discipline than what Charles is describing here. Was this film good or bad? Should people see it or not? Mm. And it's it's really hard to get people like pulled into, I'm, I'm just going to say it, like the dissolve era way uh, of thinking about film where it's about context and like the larger questions. I, I feel like film criticism may be hitting a crisis point where there are some really excellent thought out there about film right now. There's some really excellent writers, but there's also there's just so many opinions that just kind of shoot from the hip and are just, you know, I, I walked into the theater. I wasn't in a good mood. I saw this movie. It made me mad. And like, and that's the sum total of it. And training people funny, away from that is hard. Gift. Oh yeah. So no, but I, I mean, I do agree that this, this podcast, I think it, I think it lives given these three categories. I think it lives somewhere between movie review and film theory and probably edging a little further into film theory. But what do you guys think? Yeah, edging a little bit into re- research, we don't we're not unresearched. You know? What here? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're re- we, we talk about the sound, uh, the key, uh, the ultrasound. I'm and, just saying we we, we do uh, yeah. some of that. Too. Okay, sure. Definitely. I, I have very cynical answers. I, I what's going to pay me? I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of speaks to your whole. I know, it's a whole road I want to go down on this on this podcast, but it kind of speaks to your whole crisis point. It's like. You know, is there a market for any of this right now? Not really. A little bit enough enough to get by, but it's um, one thing with the the breakdown of sort of authoritative media sources. There, there are, as you say, there, you know, there's lots of opinions out there, and and you know, easy to just go to Rotten Tomatoes and, and look at what the what the aggregate is based on on some numbers. Um, 
which I've done as well. I'm guilty of that as well. But then, then to uh, always read meticulously all the reviews for a certain publication or a certain critic or whatever that you know used to be more common. It's hard to be a specialist now. I mean, you have to be able to to write about a lot of different media if you want to be able to be viable. So so it's not you, you can't just you know be deeply in, immersed in you know film and film theory and film history and expect expect that to be a practical choice. But I would say. Personally speaking, that that you know, I went to graduate school in cinema studies, and so film theory and 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 um, you know that that is that that's just a core aspect of my personality. Whether it comes through in the work explicitly or not, it's just it's just there. It's just part of my interpretive faculties, I would say. And then um, you know, obviously, I've been writing a lot of film reviews, and I and I, I but I do really like getting into historical context. Whether whether I'm writing a piece that has to do with a piece of history or whether I'm bringing it into a discussion of a newer film as we do here all the time. And I do all the time in my writing as well. I mean, that's a, that is a, another core principle of the dissolve and a core principle of the show. It actually makes me happiest. I, I love, I love research. I love delving into, into history and, and, uh, and the context of, from, you know, films emerge from and making connections. That said, when Charles here says academic research paper, that is not the kind of thing my oh, mind no, goes to. That I don't do. Yeah, I I mean I I have so little interest in that. I was exposed to so much of it in in school and I like doing the commercial watered down version of that. Yeah, yeah. it is kind of a commercial watered down version that doesn't use the word liminal right. and does not take as a basic tenet that if you put parentheses around the the prefix for the word it can mean both the word and the oh, opposite of the that. word. <laughs> I hate that so much. Yeah. That is like yeah. It just it, it undermines we, whatever you're trying to moment say. With that, pretty, <laughs> I, lo- I love it. On. Just like just like pushing, just pushing keys, keys button right buttons right now. Grad school burnout. Yeah, um, yeah I would. I mean, I would say that uh, academic research is really limited to like the academic setting and and to academics in terms of uh, both interest and utility, and that. Film theory is really interesting in a in like in a larger sense, but uh, possibly belongs more in book form. I would posit a fourth thing uh, here that is the like the synthesis essay or the uh, the contextual essay that is less a review of a specific movie and more what we're trying to do in terms of uh, contextualizing something or going into a, a deeper analysis of it. I think we'll get into this a little on the next podcast next week when we start talking about us, but so much has been written about that film already that's uh, like big, big analysis, big in-depth thoughts that really has nothing to do with should you see the movie, is it good or bad, that's about about like exploring ideas that don't really have their basis either in academics or film theory that have their basis in uh, what can we draw from this? Like what, what does it mean uh, on a deeper fundamental level? Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll pair Invasion of the Body Snatchers with a completely different kind of body snatcher, the kind that comes from underground and brings along a whole lot of densely packed references to past pop culture. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. 
Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, can we recommend a nice, peaceful night's sleep? In the morning, you'll be one of us. Trouble, oh dear, my bad body double, uh, mm, mm, my bad, bad body double trouble. Oh.